Welcome to Network Capital TV, everyone. I'm very excited to host my friend, uh, Dr. Marcus Rani, who's written a wonderful book at the Human Edge. And in today's masterclass, we're going to deep dive not only into his book, but also into his larger, very adventurous career. So welcome to Network Capital TV, Marcus. Uh, tell us who you are and what do you do today? Thank you very much. It's incredible to be here. I've, for everyone watching, I've been a big fan of what Utkarsh has done and built this incredible community over the last few years. So firstly, many, many congratulations to you for doing all of this. And uh, it's a real joy to be part of this uh, journey with you here today. Um, I've been a very fortunate soul in that my career has allowed me the opportunity to zigzag uh, across many aspects with a fundamental vision towards improving our collective well-being. And I think we can get into what that means later on. Uh, but that's sort of the objective of what I'm trying to do. I call myself the champion of well-being and it's really been a, and a headline has been the journey from sick care uh, because as a medical doctor, that's what I trained as, ironically a healthcare expert, very little health in the care we provide, mainly focused on pathogenesis and disease. And over the last two decades, increasingly moving towards the well-being side where it's really focused about how can we augment this journey that we're on? How can we go as upstream as possible? And uh, that's been my incredible journey so far. And I look forward to all the new adventures to come. So uh, doctor, management consultant, investor, uh, at one point general manager of a, of a large company uh, in India, and uh, now an author and a platform builder. So what connects all of them? Tell us uh, if there's one unifying thread into all your adventures or are you following your curiosity? What's this uh, uh, adventurous career centered on? I'll add the title I'm most proud of, which is Father. Uh, and I hope maybe we can talk about that journey uh, later on as well. But that really Oh, we fully intend to, uh, Marcus. I've read uh, the letters that you've written to your, uh, to your children uh, right. on social media, et cetera. And I thought that uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I think every parent should write and perhaps learn from you on that. So yes, proud father and all the other accomplishments to your name. Connect the dots for us. Yeah, it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's, it's that journey of well-being, you know, so when I look at what well-being means, uh, I really define my objectives in a series of three concentric circles, uh, the well-being of the individual, uh, the well-being of the unit, the team, the organization, and then the well-being of the system. And I've reached the stage in my life and my career that has allowed me to invest my energies across each of these three facets and, and we, can, we can explore them as we go along. Uh, but that's sort of the structural foundation of how I sort of frame my life and what I do at, at a career level. And, uh, and it's, it's truly in its holistic sense, right? So as a medical doctor, the lens was very much about the alleviation of suffering and hopefully the curation of the disease. I say hopefully because that typically doesn't happen much. It's more about the alleviation of suffering, which in itself is a fantastic endeavor and something that I've been reminded of uh, as a frontline medic when the pandemic started and, and some of the experiences that I got to do in the early months of, 
of, uh, of COVID uh, uh, last year. But after that, how it goes on, it's really about the four channels of who we are. That's the body, that's the brain, that's the heart, and that's energy. Those are the four key components that I consider part of what it means to be truly full in our, in our machine with regard to who we are as organic beings. And then, of course, there are many other facets, right? There's the financial aspects of well-being. There are the environmental facets of well-being. There's what you do at work. Uh, there's your relationships. All those other things also fall into that. But so if I try and think in terms of a framework, that's, that's what I've defined for myself. And that's how I commit my, my time and energies. Excellent. So um, you grew up uh, and you worked and you're now working in different places. Uh, how did you decide to, you know, move from, um, you know, being a practicing doctor to be to being uh, an investor, an author and a healthcare uh, or a well-being champion? Like what was uh, what was the fundamental question that you're trying to answer? And the reason I uh, put this question forward is that we notice many doctors actually write phenomenal novels, talk about their experiences, uh, etc. So does that medical training play a role in you evaluating healthcare uh, in a broader ecosystem level? I don't think the medical training uh, plays a role in the evaluation. I think what it's really good at doing is, uh, is, is probably two things. Number one, is it's, it's probably the most intimate career that you can create or that you can have, right? Because what happens, and I speak about this in the TED talk that I gave a few years ago, is that that doctor-patient relationship is, is sacred because the person on the other side is coming to you in the point at which she or he is at their most vulnerable. And they're asking you one simple thing, please just help me become less sick. Please just help me with my suffering. So it's a huge responsibility, but that moment of empathy grounds you as a, as a human being. And all of the bigger challenges that we perceive in our life, like mortgages and um, you know, politics at work and all the other stuff, right? That we think, oh, this is such a big thing. They pale in comparison when you remind yourself of that moment. So I always hold that true because I, I, I put it in that perspective, right? Irrespective of how big a client I'm presenting to, irrespective of who I'm speaking to at the other end of the phone, I always remind myself that I've done something much more human before. And so everything else just comes on that level of priority. So that's number one. The second thing that I've learned over the years and I think that comes through medicine because you have to get used to talking because after the, I mean, we're very lucky in this age, we've got so many incredible diagnostics available to us from the wearables through the digital and the genomics and the personalized medicine and all of that will continue to explode. But the, the, the incredible aspect of being a doctor is the clinical history taking. How well can you get that story from that other person? Because if you get that story right, then actually the diagnostics are just there to collaborate and confirm rather than to, to, uh, to, to try and just be investigative from the point of, of sick. So that ability to extract a story has really taught me how to tell a story. And I know you talk about this a lot and I've, I've been watching your masterclasses as well with regard to the importance of public speaking and communication, et cetera. But that's been a thread that I've been very fascinated about. And, you know, I, I love reading like the, 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 the scripts of famous 
speeches through history, right? Uh, and it could be anyone. It could be Winston Churchill's uh, speech. It could be Martin Luther. It could be Hitler. It could be Obama. All those great orators. What goes into a very powerful narrative? Because if you are able to communicate an idea to a person, then they're part of your reality, right? Because reality is a construct of ideas and each of our realities is different based on the stories that we say inside our head. So these are two things that I, I think one of which, you know, the prioritization from obviously being a doctor and then that ability to communicate with other people and the, the lesson of how important that storytelling is. I think these are things which I've tried to hone and hopefully have, you know, put together in good use for the very different roles that I've had, but also in crafting together this piece of uh, work as well. And it comes together in your book as well, how you're essentially drawing upon different disciplines to make a point. And here, you, I think while you talk about Winston Churchill and Hitler, I'm pretty sure you're not extolling their virtues, but the fact that they were powerful orators, not particularly, yes. of course, like that, I just thought I'd clarify for the uh, listeners. So Marcus, connect the dots between your TED talk, which was uh, what does healthcare look like in 2030 and yeah. at the human edge, your latest book. Wow, okay. Um, my fascination has always, and I think hopefully will always be, how could we extract the most out of this machine that we have, right? I love to think of myself as a biohacker and I'm constantly experimenting with things, whether that's supplements, whether that's practices, whether that's ideas, whether what I'm reading, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, what, that's the, the fundamental philosophy with regard to what I'm trying to do in terms of a construct. The book really brings the, the world of the outdoors, hopefully alive into the, 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 the indoors for someone who's reading it. And what I've purposely chosen are six extreme environments, four of which I've had the, the good fortune to work in, whether that's been Mount Everest, whether that's been putting a, a woman or man on, on Mars, whether that's been uh, scuba diving, marathon running, we've got a chapter on the desert and a chapter on going to the South Pole. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to take the reader into the shoes of the protagonist and what is it like to physically go on that journey? So in the chapter on Mount Everest, it's if you are climbing Mount Everest, what do you see along the way? What's base camp really like? What happens at camp one, camp two, advanced camp, etc.? And then once I've got you into that world, into that reality, now let's go in. What's happening now inside of your body? What are the changes going on in the way your heart's working? Because the oxygen is so low, right? Why is the oxygen low? So I'm describing to you what are the physics of altitude and how is it impacting your body in hypoxia, which is a low oxygen environment, its effect on the body. And then as I go into that physiology, then describing to you what are the manifestations that you may in, in, uh, uh, be exposed to if you went on this journey. So acute mountain sickness or cerebral edema, which is fluid on the brain or high altitude pulmonary edema, which is fluid on the lung. So what does that, what does that feel like? What are people's testimonials for how that feels like, how you can treat it, how you can overcome that? And then of course, it's the inspirational stories. So Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Nor Norway, Norway's uh, summit of Everest, I've had 
other great voices throughout the book. I've tried to bring my own experiences of, of my field research in these different extreme environments as well. And so that, Utkarsh, that's the, that's the vehicle. So each chapter has been written in this style. So your journey to the South Pole, your journey of running a full marathon. And by doing so, I hope that number one, of course, if you're someone who's a runner, then it's an easy to pick up book because you will naturally be very inclined and have a high affinity with what I'm talking about. But if you're, something of, if you're someone who dreams of running a marathon or who dreams of visiting Everest Base Camp or maybe one day summiting or maybe has aspirations to be an astronaut, and remember this is being written for posterity and the, the generations to come as well, then what is that journey going to be like? And what do you need to be aware of? And what are the stories of people gone by? So, so that's the whole premise and the whole idea. And, you know, I hope it comes through. I'm really excited by it. And, um, and so that's the whole idea of the book. Now, answering your question, how it connects to the TED Talk, the, the, the idea behind the TED Talk, and this was something I gave about four or five years ago now, was, again, I, I love to dream. I, I, I love conveying stories. And if we needed to imagine what our lives would like be like in 2030, rather than just thinking about what are the practical applications that we would, that we would have accessible, I've tried to think about it, well, what if I were a patient in 2030? Or what if I were a doctor in 2030? What would that experience be like? So the premise of the talk was that I wake up on the 10th of September, 2030, after ingesting something that allowed me to time travel. And now I'm walking onto the ward. What does that ward look like? What does conducting surgery really look like? What does my experience treating a patient really look like? So that hallowed sacred relationship, that doctor-patient relationship, how different is it because of technology or is it fundamentally the same, spoiler alert, and it just gets augmented because of what's going on around us. And if it is augmented, what do we need to do today? Because we're really the designers of the future. The future isn't set. We have to design what's to come. So what do we need to do today to design for a future that we truly want? So that's really how I viewed it. And, and hopefully it sort of comes through a thread of, of good health and well-being along the way. Yeah. Let's, uh, before we dive into the other sections of the book, let's try and uh, discuss the language a little bit. So this book is what you call popular science. So when you were choosing uh, the structure of the book or the way you wanted to write it, write it um, who was your audience? Who was your core audience in the beginning? And I understand that that evolved over a period of time because you rewrote parts of the book. Uh, talk to us about the language and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, the whole rigor of getting something published uh, as a next part. Absolutely, because you're a published author and I'd love to hear your views as well. I wrote this book originally and I dedicated this book to my two young children. And the premise of it was very simple. I would love for them to be as inspired, as excited by biology, particularly human physiology and psychology as I am. And I thought that what a nice gift it might be for them to read about science from the words of their father. And I know when I'm older, I'll be much grayer and probably much more boring and they may not want to spend time with me as much as they do now. So can I put something down which is a, almost like a time capsule for them? So that's the reason why I wrote the book. And, and, uh, and, and therefore, uh, if no one ever reads this book, it doesn't matter as long as my two children 
uh, read it. That's the that's the only two people that 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 matter from a reading perspective. So that was the that's the honest truth as to why I I wrote it, and uh, and yes, there were many different iterations of it, and it originally began as a very I would say science heavy book. It was uh, uh, very academic in nature. That was just the style that I was very used to writing. And remember, I, I started writing this six years ago. So I was in a very different space as well in terms of where I was in my life, what I was doing and my own storytelling uh, ability. And then through the years, through the long journey that it takes to get a book out to market and the various interactions that one has with publishers and, and, and advisors, et cetera, it went through three serial rounds of edits. And now it's, 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 I, I think incredible because it's um, it's much more accessible. Anyone can pick it up, uh, whether you are a student of science or not. It really doesn't matter because I I build on basic principles. But I hope that by the inclusion of bringing in history, legacy, geography, natural sciences, etc., all of that just makes it so much more inviting for someone to take in. Uh, 100%. And uh, there are various sections of the book, which we'll dive into shortly. But uh, these six years weren't straightforward, right? You changed, I think, geographies, sectors, professions, uh, curiosities to some extent. Um, so you also experienced a fair chunk of rejection while you were thinking through the structure, getting through. Talk us through that and what kept you going to the day that it's finally out there by, a, by an international publisher. Yeah, so when I first started writing, I was a consultant. I was traveling a lot. Uh, I had just gotten married. My wife and I, we just got married and I was literally on the road for two weeks and then I would come back for the weekend and then would go out. So actually writing the, the chunk, the first chunk, it was very easy because I was in hotels and on the road all the time. It took me about four months to write 80% of that first piece of content. And at that point in time, I then reached out to a couple of publishers, very wet behind the ears, obviously. And uh, I submitted uh, some online proposals. And they said, you know, Marcus, you've got an interesting story, but we feel you should get an agent. Uh, and remember, this is before even self-publishing was a big thing. So, you know, that, uh, that methodology was still very common practice. So I reached out, I found an incredible agent, uh, and she and I hit it off very well. She believed in what I was trying to produce. And in the course of two years, we must have made around 40 submissions, all of which were rejected. Uh, and that hurt because, you know, you put your, you put your heart on your sleeve, you write something and uh, something which, as I expressed, was truly personal to me because of who I wanted my audience to be, that, um, you know, to go through those rejections over and over, and then you start to question, well, is this something which is even meant to be out there? Or should this just be, you know, a collection of letters and, a, and something that just sits on my hard drive that I give to my kids when they're grown up? So I had a, an honest conversation with my agent and I said, look, you know what, I'm just going to take hold of this for a while and, uh, and let me just see where we go with this, where I go with this. I said, okay, I'm going to give myself some time. So, you know, about a year passed. I didn't do much with it. And then one day I picked it up again and I said, uh, you know, let me just reread it. Let me relook at it and let me see if there's something that can be done. So I started to make some edits to it at that point in time. I started to work on the, the rest of what the What kind book. of edits? Language, mainly language. It was, you know, I, I made it more accessible, uh, moving away from just hardcore science. 
I started to play with this idea of putting yourself in the, putting the reader in the protagonist's shoes. And I did that for the marathon chapter and it worked re reasonably well. I was quite happy with that. And uh, at that point in time, I also started to complete chapters five and six, which I knew were going to be part of the set, but I hadn't done it up until time, uh, up until that point in time. So I started writing chapters five and six. And then at that point I said, okay, you know what, this time, I'm going to try doing things my way, uh, uh, to quote from a great Frank Sinatra song. And, uh, and so I went on to Google and I typed in uh, uh, popular science, uh, no, science, uh, publishing science uh, books or something like this, international publishers. And Google, who's the oracle of all wisdom, was very kind to me. And uh, it sent me, you know, these are the people who use And there was one with an actual email address of an editor. And I said, okay, and Singapore based, I said, okay, uh, you know, let me reach out. Uh, and so I sent her an email and the very next morning I received a response saying, you know, dear Dr. Rani, this is a really interesting premise. We'd love to have a word with you. And so the next week we were on a call and she really liked it. She said, okay, send me the draft, send me a couple of chapters. Uh, and, uh, and there began the news story. And so this was World Scientific. It just so happened that I was traveling to Singapore uh, a couple of months later. So we met in person. We signed, we signed the, the deal. And uh, from there on, it's been two years since we've reached here today. And the number of edits occurred after that. So, you know, we agreed that that premise of the protagonist as the, as the reader, the reader as the protagonist is a good one. So I then had to rewrite all the chapters in that same framework, which takes time because you have to go back and restructure, yeah. do all of those things. Number two is I, I vastly decided to expand the, the non-scientific content. So bring in much more history, expedition, vignettes, uh, interesting stories of legacies, etc., and do a bunch of interviews with people as well uh, and do some secondary research as well. And so that took some more time. And then as we started to put it together, my own life journey was going through such a transformation because I really got into long distance running and I completed my first full marathon. And I realized through all of this, that my search, my quest, and a little bit of a spoiler alert, I suppose, for people who haven't read the book yet, was always the physical aspect you know, when we think about these incredible expeditions, we understand oh, a lot of money goes in and equipment goes in and lots of people have to build fancy rocket ships to get, you know, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins to even uh, lunar orbit and what it gets to get down. But what we don't appreciate was the, is the physiology that goes in, the training of the human body that goes in. And so that's the journey that I was on to become a full marathon runner. And then it suddenly dawned on me that actually the magic isn't just limited to the body. It's what actually goes on in our mind, not the brain, in the mind that allows us to get over that finish line. And so I, the, you know, it dawned on me that this book was incomplete, that there was actually a missing chapter to this, which is the final chapter, which I call Mind Over Matter, which is what happens inside of that 1.4 kilogram organ that resides in your brain that allows these incredible human beings to achieve these incredible things. Uh, and then everything just fell in nicely together. The whole book sort of took shape. Uh, we were originally gonna publish in 2020, but 
as you know, a lot of things, the world changed. The global distribution production of paper became a, a shortfall. So for many reasons, we decided to delay. But then eventually I thought, no, 2021, the start of 21 is the opportune time for two reasons. One, we've all come to the realization of the competitive advantage that well-being plays in our lives. It's a national security issue, it's a process issue, and it's fundamentally important at our individual levels as well. And people are hungry to understand more about their human body. So the timing of this was opportunistic from that perspective. And two, we've all been living in lockdown, frankly, and we yearn for the great outdoors. We yearn for these great adventures and to go traveling again. And until we can get there, hopefully in this year at some point as the vaccine rolls out and as we get a greater control over the pandemic, let me at least allow people to travel in their mind's eye through the journey of the book. And so I thought January 21 was the right time to do this. So here we are today. Yeah, here we are. There's this sense of wonder in your book, which I find fascinating. So uh, let's try and you crystallize at the human edge. Like what's the core value proposition of the book? And then uh, walk us through any adventure, Mariana Trench or Mount Everest, because you've partaken of four of the six, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So tell us the central value proposition of the title, what the book is about, and walk us through how you wrote any chapter, perhaps your favorite adventure. The words human edge are very purposeful for me, and I'll tell you why. We each, and I think this is incredibly important for your community as well, right? As we try and build our lives up, both personally and professionally, we try and attain certain attributes. Attributes could be things like agility, resilience, rapid learning, et cetera, et cetera, productivity, performance, et cetera. These are attributes. These are goals that we set ourselves. And, you know, of course, there are courses to get there. There are sessions like this to, to listen and exercises to do. But what I found to be very important is the human level, which is your biology, which is principally your physiology and your psychology have to be aligned, attuned for you to achieve that attribute, right? There is no point you trying to be resilient if you're not imbibing the value. So if you don't sleep, frankly, if you don't sleep eight hours a day, you can never be resilient because you cannot charge. Your, your physiology will never be in a position that allows you to face a challenge head on at a repeatable, sustainable manner. So that's the missing piece. And that's you know where I spend the majority of my professional life now as a corporate speaker, as a business coach, et cetera, through the Human Edge platform. And that's the story that I wanted to convey. So that's why the word is even there. These two words come together, Human Edge. And the vehicle is simple. It's to bring the inspirational stories of the outdoors and take you on a journey of the indoor, in, in your indoors to then bring you into that realization, right? So, so that's the first piece. Now, there are many journeys and, and, uh, and all of them are, are interesting uh, for a variety of reasons. But I think the one that I will always uh, gravitate towards, and it's even why I chose it as chapter one, is my experiences on Mount Everest. This was a expedition that I 
did in 2007. I was a medical student at the time. And originally, of course, it was just going to be me and three other friends in summer holiday. We were going to do something interesting and, and, and go to Everest uh, for, for the summer. And uh, it snowballed. It really snowballed out of a passion for learning about the human body and thinking, oh, maybe we can do a couple of experiments while we're there. And people heard about it through med school and people started writing to me to say, Marcus, can we join you on this expedition, etc." And it eventually became, it was a two-year planning exercise, right? It took me two years to plan this. We had 100 people as part of the expedition. At the time, it was the largest research expedition to Mount Everest ever. Um, the first of its kind to be led by a medical student. And uh, we had 60 student doctors and doctors and then a team support staff of 40. We had three tons of medical equipment and we conducted 17 experiments including you know measuring your ecg and your heart trace along the way we took blood samples we took oxygen measurements we were measuring respiratory function we were measuring mood and psychological state uh, we were taking saliva samples to measure cortisol and immune factor releases all kinds of incredible stuff we did on the mountain um, and it shaped me because it taught me the real aspect of responsibility to be responsible for so many lives fundamentally on this treacherous journey up Mount Everest. And we went in August, which is actually not a normal time to go. Typically people go uh, in the months of uh, just around October. So September, October, November, and then December, just before it gets really cold. August is the monsoon season. And so we had to go at that point in time because we were such a large group that we wouldn't be able to be accommodated if we went in peak uh, climbing season. So we lost a number of bridges. We had landslides, we had avalanches, we had a helicopter evacuation. I had to send uh, two people home off the mountain as well. Uh, and so there were lots of learnings for me. I was a young guy, I was only 23, 24 to be put in that position of responsibility. But I just learned so much and I, I, therefore I will always remember that expedition as a very life altering uh, journey for me for many years of planning and then execution and then what happened with the science and what we learned. So that, that's probably my fondest expedition of all the things that I've done in my life. Yeah, and reading this is really educational for the reader as well because you understand a bit of science, a bit of uh, psychology, a bit about crisis management, all of these. So. I think for reading six such adventures, uh, your book does a pretty cool job of uh, you know, curating it, designing the experience. Uh, Marcus, uh, I'm given to understand that At the Human Edge is now gonna be a platform as well, if it's not already one. So talk us about uh, the future plans of uh, the platform that you're building and how will your book be, say, utilized in different fashions by companies, startups, uh, and other enterprises? Yeah, I've become an entrepreneur. This is a new adventure for myself. In Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm really excited by that. Uh, Human Edge is a platform. We're going to be launching it formally in February. Uh, it's, uh, we're just going through, for all the entrepreneurs out there, I've just closed my seed round. We're just going through the registration. We're going to become a Singapore-based entity. Uh, and I've already started to work with and service a bunch of clients. And the whole idea is really uh, to be that performance coach for business. Because if one looks at a sports team, a team you will understand and you'll appreciate that they have 
physical fitness coaches and skill development trainers and nutritionists and ergonomic coaches and mental agility coaches, etc. Business leaders, business teams, business organizations require exactly the same thing, particularly now, after all the challenges that we've gone through in 2020. And as I come back to that realization of the competitive advantage that well-being plays, not only at the unit level life, which is at the employee, ultimately the, the foundation of our human capital system, but then going all the way up through our processes, business processes, leadership style, cultures, et cetera. So that's the, that's the effort that we're building out. So it's a series of advocacy, it's a series of interventions, workshops, content, one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching, uh, et cetera, that we really immerse ourselves in our business partners and there are two very distinct products. There's a leadership product, which is a 100-day sprint that we work with a small group of people to get them through that, those different uh, attributes. And then there's the organization-wide. So how can we move the entire culture towards that around productivity and performance and, and working with them at these individual unit modules as well? I'm really excited to see how this unfolds and uh, more power to you. Uh, this book is the first of many steps that you and your company will partake of. Um, you know, just wrapping up, uh, there's a chapter which I found fascinating. It's, uh, it alludes to mitochondria. So do you yeah. want to tell us uh, what it's about and why should people care about it? And why did you include it in the book? <laughs> uh, I have a love of, I have a very strange love affair with mitochondria to the extent, and it's still available on Facebook somewhere. When I was a medical student on Halloween, um, I once dressed up as Captain Mitochondria. I made my own <laughs> superhero outfit with a magic cape of affinity and a mask of resilience and, and the power of ATP. Uh, mitochondria is a fascinating component of our cell. It's an organelle, so it's a component of the cell and it exists to create energy. Its role, it's the energy production mechanism inside of our cell. It's actually from, a, from an evolutionary perspective, it was a separate organism. At some point in our evolutionary journey, we engulfed it and discovered how much it provides to us in terms of benefit that we've kept it now. Uh, and, uh, and so that's the role, mitochondria produces energy. It brings the spark of life. And I've been fascinated with it right from being a medical student because its role is obviously to create that energy, but it, it's, it's, its whole purpose seems to be around efficiency. The whole construct of mitochondria is around enhancing the efficiency. And I talk about it at different points of the book. It comes up in Everest. It comes up in the journey to Mars. It comes up again in South Pole. And I've actually dedicated a chapter to it at the end, which is more scientific in nature. And I really believe that the secrets of longevity, of uh, our ability to perform, uh, uh, overcome chronic diseases, are all locked up in this tiny organelle. And I see over the next 20 to 40 years, as we better understand its biochemistry, as we better understand its biophysiology, et cetera, we get to a position where we can actually manipulate it to our advantage. Um, incidentally, even things which are commonplace today, such as intermittent fasting, uh, these all are linked back to the role that it has on my, on, on mitochondria and how energy and metabolism is changed inside the cell, the different types of fuels that we use, how we metabolize different fuels, the ketogenic effect of that. 
So there's so much happening and that's why I thought it deserves its own place in history uh, and deserves its own chapter to it as well. Well, it sure does. Uh, from that Halloween party till, you know, your book, I think uh, that character deserves a special mention. Um, you know, wrapping up, any final message for our millennials and Gen Z around the world who are trying to create their human edge? Um, any thoughts, reflections, advice for them? I think as we get older, we often get distracted by life. And uh, we get pulled in many different directions. And the, and the things that we hold most dear, particularly when we're younger, like playing sport and spending time with friends and looking after our bodies and our minds, we sometimes think that these are things that we can sacrifice in this pursuit of success. Success, by the way, folks, is defined by society. It's a, it's a delusion which is around collective money and wisdom or power, money and power. But what we need to remember for ourselves, and particularly when we're very young, to hold, hold on to that, is that success is who we are. What is it that you want to be as a person? And let that define what you do as people. And that will eventually lead to what you have. But remember that journey of be, do, and have. And I hope that you build in human edge and that ability for well-being to be part of that. Because as you get older, the irony of life is then you get reminded of these things. And, you know, I'm in my late <laughs> now and I wish I took better care of myself when I was younger but it's never too late we can each try and do what we can every day yeah this book is a hopeful one like you can start and compound ever, uh, anytime you want Marcus more part to you I loved reading this book and I'm sure um, our community members around the world of Network Capital will enjoy it and uh, I wish you the very best as you launch your new platform you'll scale the book further and look forward to our continued collaboration. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me with us. To all the members of Network Capital, take care of yourselves. Thank you.